Hello and welcome to The Sacred. This podcast is about how we talk to people who believe, belong and behave differently from ourselves and about the things that we hold sacred. Today you're going to hear a conversation that I had with Tim Farron MP ahead of the Theos annual lecture recently. Tim is uh, an MP. He was born in Lancashire. He studied at Newcastle University since 2005. He has been the MP for Westmoreland and Lonsdale and from 2015 until this summer, Tim was leader of the Liberal Democrats. And many of you will have seen the news stories about uh, the questions that he received about some of his convictions around sexuality and the difficulties that he had answering those questions. When he stepped down, he said he felt that the state of our public conversations made it difficult for him to hold together his liberalism and some of his Christian convictions. If you want to hear more about that, you can hear the full audio, video and text of the lecture on our website. For this short podcast, I spoke to him about what he'd learned about building coalitions with people that believe different things through his work in politics, how he thought that we were doing at our public conversations and what was next for him. We spoke in a very big grand room at the Law Society, so if it sounds a little bit like we're having a chat in a cave, that's why, but I hope you enjoy it. Tim, I'm going to ask uh, the question that I'm asking everyone because I think it's at the heart of why we sometimes find it hard to talk to people different from us. What do you hold sacred? It depends what we mean by by sacred. Um, what's the most important things in my life? You're bound to talk about family, friends, things that make up my identity. But I guess as a Christian, I hold um, Jesus Christ sacred. I consider him to be exactly who he said he was. And that therefore leads me to make some very deep conclusions about how I choose to live my life. How did you come to have that right at the start, the heart of uh, your view of the world? Well, there's a really good question. Um, so I was brought up um, a very loving mum, very loving dad, who split up when I was five years of age. We lived with my mum, but I had a good relation, still do have a very good relationship with my dad. My dad's Catholic, but I never went to church with him. Well, I went once when I was 12. Um, uh, but, you know, so I was brought up in a liberal guardian reading home. Um, my mum voted Labour or Liberal Democrat, mostly Liberal Democrat, but... Um, um, uh, and had that kind of, um, you know, she was a member of the poorly paid public sector middle, middle classes, basically. Um, and so I was not brought up to, uh, you know, in a, in a particularly Christian environment. I guess I thought that um, people who were Christians, I thought they were interesting, but I thought I was not so gullible as to believe any of that nonsense. So um, I joined the Liberals and got involved in politics um, when I was 16. Uh, having been a member of a couple of pressure groups before that uh, as an excitable, politically interested teenager in the 80s. Um, but I was 18 when I made a decision, a conscious decision to become a Christian. Um, and essentially, I read um, what you call apologetics, really. And it made me see that Christianity was dynamic. It wasn't a book about stuff that happened thousands of years ago. It was something that was A, believable and B, with a future. And so I chose to become a Christian and put my trust in Christ. Having uh, developed that view of the world really centred on your beliefs, how have you found engaging with and talking to people uh 
both through your work politically and also more broadly in the media, who would hold perhaps other things sacred? So it's interesting. I mean, I don't think I found any difficulty with it in the time when I wasn't um, an MP. And I spent um, uh, years in uh, student politics. Um, there were times when I would say, I mean, these might be some of the things that do come up later on, but I was aware during my time in student politics of an incredible intolerance of from people who would consider themselves to be small L liberal uh, towards viewpoints that I accept were extreme um, uh, but nevertheless that as a liberal I felt you need to tolerate and give space to so the whole notion of no platforming was alive and well in the 1980s as it is today in 2017 I don't think that necessarily came from a, a Christian perspective although sometimes some of the groups would have a you know a Christian angle to them um, those that were sort of silenced I think it was just generally a, a belief that if someone's got something to say you should let them say it and you're more like to disprove it and defeat a um, a worldview or uh, a viewpoint um, if you if you give it airtime and take it on. And how do you think generally as a society we're doing at talking to people who have different values or identities or perspectives from us? So it's hard to be clear what we're comparing it with. Was there a time when we were better at it? And I'm not sure, but my observation at the moment is that we're not very good at it um, and that we do our best to uh, try and make ourselves understood and aren't even remotely interested in understanding anybody else. And I think so, you know, does being a Christian affect my worldview? Yes, but my part of my faith is, a, is an understanding that I am colossally flawed. And therefore, you know, there are plenty of times when I would be no more distinct than anybody else. But one of the things that is important, very important, is not so much what we say, but how we conduct ourselves. And so when you do come up against a almost a refusal to understand um, and a desire to kind of talk at one another um, it's an opportunity from my point of view to display grace and you know if people act in ways which you know almost deserve you to respond equally harshly that's your moment where you take a deep breath and think right I'm, I'm going to try and act in a, in a different way and treat them in a way they totally don't expect me to. You've uh obviously worked in politics for long enough to get good at building broad coalitions. I uh, was very impressed by a piece in the Huffington Post by someone who led an LGBT, LGBT group within the Liberal Democrats, essentially defending your record yeah. and saying, back off, you know, th this this guy's got our back, um, which struck me as testament uh, to your ability to, to connect with difference. How... Tell me more specifically, with that person or with others, what are the building blocks for building trust uh, when you've got very different values? Well, first of all, I mean, our values are not that different. I mean, I, so I'm, I know who you're talking about, and she was um, immensely supportive of me. And uh, I guess if you, you look back to what got me involved in politics in the first place and the the kind of atmosphere in the mid-late 1980s, particularly when it came to you know LGBT rights back then, which is quite a toxic atmosphere, um, you look back at some of the literature that, let's be honest, the Tories tended to be using about in inverted commas, loony left Labour councils in London, which was you know, lumping in to support for the IRA, supporting gay rights as though somehow they were you know, equally bad and this is, they, were, they were equivalent in any way. Um, so I'm one of the reasons I'm a Liberal is because I, I believe in people's rights to make those choices and to be treated utterly equally under law and, uh, and in every other way. Um, so in some ways it, it shouldn't be surprising. Um, but in terms of building broad coalitions, um, 
I guess one of my criticisms of extremism of all kinds in politics is that it, and of tribalism, um, which I might, you know, say that some of the more hard-edged Brexiteers, and certainly Mr. Corbyn, um, undoubtedly uh, demonstrate um, uh, in their actions, that that makes it really impossible to cooperate. And it's one of the reasons why I, f- I find the current state of British politics really quite troubling, um, that you have two tribes, um, both on about 40% of the vote, um, both with very extreme agendas and with no desire or interest in compromising with anybody whatsoever. Um, and I think that's really bad for politics. I think those parties contain loads of people who don't like that kind of thing, but they're in that One tribe. One of the things that I've talked to various people about on this podcast and we think a lot about at Theos is this idea of a kind of more human, emotionally intelligent way of engaging in public. And I think, you know, particularly with the bruising year that you've had, what we've seen is a lot of these public issues, um, these neuralgic issues, we try and talk about as if we were all, you know, purely rational. We're talking very... Um, uh, we're talking very uh, theoretically when in fact a lot of these issues particularly sexuality are very personal to people come really close to our sense of self I'm pondering how do we acknowledge that how do we uh, how, how are we a bit more vulnerable in these debates do you have anything to reflect on that? Yeah, and you always need to put yourself in the other person's uh, shoes and understand how your words are heard. That doesn't mean you should be so careful as to never say anything interesting. Um, and you know, in, in uh, essential to liberalism is the is the right to offend and the duty to accept offence. I don't mean to be gratuitous um, or to be hateful, um, but to say things that might to, that might jar. And you need to accept that um, back. But I think what you say is interesting because I think that we're in a a society, and I, you know, I look at the you know, the poppy shaming that happened, you know, just a few weeks ago. Um, any person of any note whatsoever, in fact, anybody at all, not wearing a poppy was deemed to be, you know, an agent of the enemy, um, whoever that might be. And um, and then likewise, you know, the, the the whole narrative around nationalism in this country, um, particularly north of the border, dare I say it, um, where if you are not a nationalist, then you can't be a patriot, for instance. Um, and on all the these things, we're, we seem to be a society where um, we don't do things, we don't think things, we are things, um, and it's all integral to who we are. And I suppose, from a Christian point of view, if my identity is entirely wrapped up in uh, in Christ, then then yes, I'm a Blackburn Rovers fan. Yes, I'm a proud Lancastrian. Uh, you know, yes, you know, I'm uh, I, I love indie music, all those sort of things. Loads of things that sort of move towards my identity, but they're all sub merged, uh, or at least they should be. I think that's one of the criticisms people would make about Christianity in public life, religion in public life, that it cannot help but be a form of identity politics. And this is a criticism that often gets put to me that therefore, you know, religious believers are less likely to compromise. They think they've heard the voice of God. Actually, it is safer to just keep all of those commitments safely behind the church doors. Yeah. And that's a point that is certainly inferred if it's not always said directly that, you know, you need to leave your God at the door, so to speak. And my answer to that, which I'll try and cover in the in the lecture, is is that that's nonsense. That every human being has a world view. Whether they could write it down doesn't really matter. They have a world view. Uh, why does a world view that contains an apparent absence of faith um, trump one that contains one which is codified? And that is just unintelligent, frankly. Um, and all viewpoints are deserve at least the first cl- uh, glimpse um, the chance to be considered equal and to 
couldn't compete. Uh, one of my real frustrations when I'm out and about, and I spend a lot of time talking to atheists and uh, people who are from different religions or no religion or just don't really know, which I think represents a huge body of the population, uh, have a real soft spot um, for lots of those groups and individuals. And one of my frustrations is they think the things they hear from rig- religious believers aren't usually the things that believers were maybe intending to say or yeah. to communicate. Would you have any, any advice, anything that makes you tear your hair out that you wish uh, Christians and other religious be- believers would stop doing? So I think, um, I, I guess there's a variety of things. Um, I mean, I, I what I would say is that you hear sometimes, you know, controversial, um, uh, extreme and um, maybe sometimes quite uh, loveless um, stuff because that's what the media wants. So if you've got the option of somebody who is a, you know, a Bible-believing, faithful, evangelical Christian who will present the case in a way which is loving and gracious, that's boring, um, so it would appear. Um, and so let's go on say, get somebody who will say something uh, staggeringly controversial because um, that's that's airtime. Um, and so what we want to do is, is you know, remember that we we kind of get the commentators we deserve uh, to a degree um, and we need to be prepared to just go the extra mile, think about the motivations of other people and just seek to understand. And, and what you say about identity is is is, vi- is important. I, I remember tweeting something just about the Reformation a few um, weeks ago and as somebody's not been brought up to think of myself as Protestant or to belong to any denomination, I'm, I'm a Christian, um, uh, the you immediately, you've, you've touched a cultural uh, nerve and um, that's not what I meant by it but suddenly, you know, you find yourself, you know, marching behind Paisley in the idea in the eyes of, of some people. Um, understanding that before you tweet is a sensible thing. I will resist the temptation to do a full-throated defence of journalists as someone <laughs> with a uh, journalistic background, uh, but I do think part of this this thing that we're pondering about how we talk to each other better in public, the media has an enormous role, um, but perhaps uh, helping encourage, engage, equip those who have this enormous calling and, and big responsibility in their hands under time pressure and, you know, mm. business model pressure is one of the things that between us we probably should. Is nuance boring? And that's the, maybe that's the issue. And certainly I felt, you know, with you know, as, as leader of a party with limited bandwidth, shall we say, in the time that I was leader after our annihilation in 2015, um, one of my favourite phrases is that nuance is a dirty word. Um, you've only got so much time. Um, and the reality is that's the case for any journalist at any sort of message. You want something that's short and sharp. The problem is that's very often not very representative. So tell me a bit about uh, your thoughts on social media because you know for better or worse this is where our big public conversations happen um what practically could be done to make those a bit more enriching and a bit healthier so i i mean i use it um uh, an awful lot um and i think it's a very powerful way of getting your message across and it's a useful way of gauging what people think out there although it is very often not representative um i think it's important to remember that and it's quite conf- it confuses people i think because there's a a belief that what you hear uh, see out on social media represents the whole of society and it might but we don't know the demographic is likely to be skewed um, but so my my observation is and I you know I, I like I said, I've used it for many years now, um, is that like any technology, um, it's neutral. It's what you do with it that counts. Um, what I observe over the last few years, and it certainly wasn't the case 
maybe 10 years ago, but it is now, is that social media, which felt like a kind of opportunity for a thousand different views to flower, um, that suddenly this was a great way of undermining the power of huge media corporations. It isn't. Um, so two things have happened. One is the corporations have found um, that this is, you know, they can use it to their own advantage. And secondly, uh, irrespective of, um, you know, corporate involvement, irrespective of troll factories that may or may not exist in St. Petersburg, um, there is, uh, nevertheless, it would appear, um, a, a kind of pack mentality, um, a narrowing of debate. Rather than it being thousands of different viewpoints being expressed, it tends to be two and and they are reinforced and it it closes down debate and creates group group think or that's how it appears at the moment um and is that just human beings being human beings it feels like road rage um you know people being keyboard warriors saying things to each other online they'd never dare say uh, in person um and uh, so having said that there's all sorts of very gracious lovely people out there as well um, they just perhaps don't you know pique your inter- attention in the same way tell me what's next for you what are you what are your hopes and uh, plans over the next season okay well I mean my um, uh, absolute commitment and desire is to remain MP for Western Lonsdale for as long as the good folks will have me for the foreseeable future I love doing it it's a great opportunity to serve people and get things done um, and I'm really enjoying doing that really really enjoying it uh, in terms of um, the kind of things we're talking about in the lecture, trying to win the right for faith in general, but Christianity in particular, to be given a hearing and then to be a voice that um, uh, gets that message across. That's something I'm very keen to do, um, kind of starting um, with this Theos lecture uh, and to engage with some of these slightly spiky issues about what really is liberalism and that you know we're living in a time where if we're not careful, um, that kind of... Um, um, uh, assumption that liberal democracy, small l, small d, is just a given in Western societies. I think, you know, we look around ourselves uh, uh, in the United States, in our own country the last year or two, um, there's every reason for us to doubt that, that, that liberal democracy is something that's here to stay. Um, and that means that those of us who believe passionately in it need to refight the battles to make sure that it is secure. And what would you say to someone who wanted to engage in public life, who met, perhaps to go into politics who um, from a whole range of perspectives and beliefs and identities who's looking at the current state of liberalism or looking at um, the year you've had and thinking is this a space I want to be part of can I cope with this kind of hurly burly Mm. Uh, would you say don't do it. It's terrible. It's been dreadful. Or would you uh, say something else? I mean, I'm glad I've gone through it. Um, I think it's uh, it gives me you know great opportunities to to speak about what that involves from a personal point of view, but also what it says about our greater our wider democracy and um, the state of our national debate. So um, don't not do it. Uh, I think that you know for for me um, you know serving, and I think that is the fundamental for me. To it's an opportunity to serve people to be. Uh, humble beneath those people who've elected you whether they voted for you or not um, that is a, a great blessing, I love doing it it gets me up in the morning and when you have specific achievements, when you get somebody housed, when you get somebody the treatment they need, whatever it is that might be um, uh, the, the thing that brought them into your surgery or into your office or what have you um, it's utterly motivating um, to do that um, 
and uh, and so and I can't even begin to explain really just how motivating it is when you see somebody come when somebody comes to you crosses the road and thanks you for the fact that you know you built some council houses and they got a home I mean that's that's that makes it all worthwhile so you can achieve an awful lot and I guess what I'd say to you is that the people like me who are out there who are desiring to push back um, uh, against a kind of closing down of debate um, I I think that you know for example Christians um, should not go out there seeking to be obnoxious and offensive quite the opposite we should be absolutely riddled with grace and how we treat people should be utterly seasoned with grace but being prepared to say things that sometimes will jar that's Christianity for you it's not meant to be comfortable in any society uh, if ever a Christian feels utterly comfortable and at home in a society they've got something seriously wrong it's meant to be counterproductive counterproductive <laughs> counter countercultural um, uh, counterintellectual not counterproductive um, and I, I think that so so don't expect that being in politics will be easy um, but expect it to be hugely rewarding Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield and I'm on Twitter at Theos Elizabeth. So I hope you'll tell me what you think. Do listen out for future episodes. I'll be talking to writer Francis Spufford, priest Giles Fraser and head of Humanists UK, Andrew Copson. Please also engage with Theos. Our website is theosthinktank.co.uk and you can download a range of reports and blogs uh, and recent events and content. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook as usual. Thanks very much. 